0: Please join me in welcoming David Kennerly to the podcast. At the age of 25, David won the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism for Feature Photography for his work in Vietnam. He has photographed all 10 presidents and all three impeachment trials. He was with Hillary Clinton when she received the news about FBI Director Comey and Donald Trump on the evening he won the election. He photographed the summit between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, the legendary Ali Frazier prize fight, and the Miracle Mets. The range of iconic events that he has covered is hard to fathom. To quote his friend James Earl Jones, David is like Forrest Gump, except he was really there. David, welcome to the podcast. I want to start by saying, I often look at life in terms of experiences and unique moments, and you have certainly had many. The range of iconic moments that you've seen or been a part of is, to me, rather unbelievable. So it all began in 67 as a photographer with UPI, correct? No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm happy to be corrected.
1: No, no. At that point, I had already been shooting photographs for a couple of years. The first time I had a picture published in a real publication, it was the Lake Oswego Review, and then that same year in the Oregon Journal. And then in 1966, I got a staff photographer's job for six months on the journal. And I'd had a full scholarship to go to Portland State College, but I I basically knew what I wanted to do, which was to take photos. And so when I got the temp job at the Oregon Journal, I quit school. I hated school anyway. I was a lousy student. C plus would have been a a reach. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think one of the problems, it's not even a problem. I, I think a lot of photographers, speaking for myself particularly, are always interested in what's going on outside the window, what's going on around that corner. And I've been overcome with this insatiable curiosity throughout my career, and I still do feel that way about it, but got the job I wanted, and I did very well. I mean, I was replacing Ron Bennett. So Bennett went on a six-month active duty thing. In the Air Force, I was hired to replace him, and it was really clear that there was only going to be uh, until he came back. So the week before he came back, the publisher called me into his office, and I I thought, okay, this is the great job, kid. Glad you could be here, see you later. And the guy said, look, you've done a really good job here. Bennett's coming back, but we want you to stay. And he offered me a full-time job. Now, that guy who was the publisher of the paper, his name was William Knight. His son is Phil Knight, who founded Nike. And when I told Phil Knight this story, he said, God damn it, he never did that for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Phil went to the uh, the other newspaper, the Oregonian, and got a job on the sports desk. And I said, Yeah, your dad really screwed up your career to me. But, uh, but that's what happened. So my really, my professional career goes from like fall of 65, probably uh, 66, since then. I mean, I've been doing it full time ever since.
0: And that gave you access to photographing news around the country. You were there when Robert Kennedy had declared victory for the presidential primary at the Ambassador Hotel, and you saw him assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan?
1: I didn't see him assassinated. I was covering his... Victory speech that night. I was up on the riser, but I'd been up with him in his room and took a few pictures earlier. I even have a picture of me and Robert Kennedy together. He's sort of looking at me like, What are you doing here, kid? (laughs) (laughs) He was then going down, and Ron Bennett re enters the scene where Ron and I were both covering the bed and we flipped a coin to see who would go on the riser and who would then follow him out through the kitchen and he was going down to another ballroom for like an overflow crowd and ron was with him when he was shot and had extraordinary pictures including pictures of sir Han being captured kennedy on the floor i think that ron would have won the pulitzer but that was the year eddie adams won the pulitzer prize for saigon execution right Uh, hard to argue with that one
0: it was an extraordinary image
1: but i had photographed kennedy Two years earlier, when I was on the Oregonian in 1966, and it was because of him that I I got a real interest in doing national politics. My life is filled with people who've made a huge impact on my career, crossing paths at various important points. Because of that, I've always really believed in helping other photographers out. Everybody helped me. It's, believe it or not, a very unselfish profession. It seems cutthroat to a degree, but I I don't really think it is every now and then. uh, (laughs) uh, So the signal moment was when we went to the airport and then Kennedy ran up the stairs and got on uh, on the airplane. And Eppridge went in behind him and the door closed and the plane took off. And I had this overwhelming desire to be on that airplane. Really, that was, that lit the fuse of my career in politics.
0: That's extraordinary. It's interesting. You say a coin toss made the difference between your being on the risers or following Kennedy through the kitchen. I talked to Bob Jackson a few years ago about his photograph of Oswald being assassinated, and he said he just happened to be the guy on that morning.
1: Well, that's right. And if you're a newspaper photographer, it's an assignment-driven world. You do very little freelancing, unless you might go pitch a story to an editor. I know Bob. I have that. Print of that photo, actually, of his fellow Pulitzer winner. He um, and I really had the same kind of track. I mean, you just get your assignments. Now, ironically, Bennett was off that day, but wanted to come and see the Kennedy thing. It was a big deal. I've thought about what would have happened if I'd gone into the room, if I'd been up there with uh, Kennedy. You know, a lot of things might have happened. I might have gotten a better picture. I might have gotten shot. I might have gotten nothing. I've never thought about it to the degree that not like I wish I'd done that or uh, because Ron did a great job. And as a team, we did a great job. In my photo of Kennedy was giving the V sign right after he declared victory. And If you see the film, that was a real quick shot. That was a good picture. And then I ran out when I heard a rumor that Kennedy had been shot. I didn't know for sure. And I have a picture of Ethel in the back of the ambulance, although I did not see Senator Kennedy again. Wow. But that's how it works. You take a right, you might get one picture. If you take a left, you might get something else. Uh, I, I do believe in fate to a degree, but I also believe in being careful. I don't think I've ever been reckless with my life, and even though I've taken great chances going to Vietnam and all that. But I, uh, I'm i a pretty careful person, really.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. Well, That's I... why
1: I'm here, <laughs> talking to you.
0: <laughs> Thank goodness. So... You haven't just photographed politics. I read that you photographed the Miracle Mets in 69. Oh, yeah. You are at the World Series as well.
1: Yeah, 69 Mets. I have led a zealot-like life. In fact, James Earl Jones, uh, who was a friend, gave me a quote for uh, one of my books and said that Kennerly is like Forrest Gump, except he was really there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess when I look at my career, which is ongoing, it's hard to believe that any one person could have taken all those photographs and that person was me. I never get over that feeling. I mean, I've never taken it for granted. It's like every day when I drove into the White House grounds, parked my car next to the West Wing, it was just like every day was a like a, a miracle to me. And I never have taken my career or life for granted and I've never forgotten the people who helped me out along the way. I don't believe it's all my doing. I know I've certainly played a huge part in it by taking the photos, but there's so many people who've had an influence on me, editors, particularly picture editors at UPI. I want a Peel Prize because Larry DeSantis, who was the New York picture editor, every time a picture of mine would come across the desk from Vietnam and he liked it, he'd throw it in his drawer. And he entered those pictures the Pulitzer Contest, and I had no idea I was entered. It was the least anxiety-ridden Pulitzer Prize of all time, because you know how people are like, <laughs> you know, the, these companies uh, put a lot of firepower behind it, particularly like the New York Times and the Washington Post. I woke up to a wire saying I'd won a Pulitzer Prize. and uh, Imagine that. <laughs> and I was 25 years old. I just turned 25, and I thought it was a joke. The point being, it was because of an editor who cared about a great picture editor, a a guy who really influenced my career. And those were the days where editors weren't nice to photographers because HR would get after their ass. You know, it was like coming in and having negatives thrown at me saying, you call these pictures. I mean, it was a tough love situation. It made me a much better photographer. And A no excuses photographer. The one time I said, well, you know, what happened was all these people were throwing rocks and and I just didn't get it. And Larry looked at me and said, you can't print excuses, kid. And I never forgot that. And I don't, I think that's what bugs me a lot about what's going on in DC and people blaming other people for stuff. Step up, take responsibility for your own shit. Number one, it's the right thing to do. And number... Two, you're better off for it. And you set a higher standard for yourself. And I have incredibly high standards. I think I'm my own toughest critic. By the same token, I love other people's pictures. If somebody gets a better picture of me, I don't take that as a personal insult. I'm just happy. I mean, I'm not happy that I might've missed something, certainly, but particularly if you're in the wires and you get fired. But uh, (laughs) I just love the business. I love what we do. And I'm just so happy to be part of that.
0: And it's extraordinary. You want to continue to do that forever. It seems to be an innate part of your personality. This curiosity, the Well, to in my
1: case, I'll retire when I die, probably if then. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's true. I don't. You know, I'm 73 years old. Been pointed out by friends that I still have the mind of an 18-year-old. Why quit? I think people retire from jobs because they're forced into it if you're an airline pilot or something like that, probably a good idea, but not necessarily. Or people who just are counting the days until they're through doing a job they don't really like or they're not happy with. And I think the most fortunate part of this is that I don't feel that way about it. I'm happy every day I know I can go out and make a picture of some kind, and I do.
0: That's a beautiful thing, really. And you seem to love, I follow you online, as you know, you seem to love whatever capture you get that day, and you're invested in it. It feels intentional. So your first foray know, the White House wasn't with Gerald Ford, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you traveled on Air Force One with President Nixon before going to Saigon as a combat photographer.
1: Yeah, my trajectory with UPI was hired to work in Los Angeles in, um, I think it was November of 1967. So I moved from Portland down to L.A., I worked LA, UPI, and then I moved to New York, and that's where I covered the 69 Mets World Series. And then they moved me to Washington, D.C. in 1970. I went on the White House rotation, and so every month, staff divers at UPI would rotate to be the person going on Air Force One, and anything that the president did, it was your month on the White House. It was a pretty good system, really. And there were Five or six. So I think probably covered the White House two times a month. But my first month was May of 1970. And I know this because I have a flight certificate saying I rode on Air Force One as a guest of the president, uh, Richard Nixon. And there I am, a 23-year-old kid on the president's airplane. I mean, how mind-blowing is that? Oh, and it, we, it was incredible. I, I was probably the youngest photographer doing that. And that was a good job. D.C. has always been an interesting place. It's the epicenter of the world politics. All these fascinating people are going through. And, of course, the presidency is the biggest game in town, and that was my part of that. But I think what happened to me, did you ever watch that movie, uh, Mr. Roberts, with Henry Fonda? Yes. Mr. Roberts uh, was this great naval officer and the captain of his supply ship, which was like out in these backwaters of Asia. One of the great scenes is Henry Fonda watching these destroyers sail by going into battle, and he wanted to be on the destroyer, and a, a, a perfect analogy for how I felt about going to Vietnam, like I was riding on Air Force One, and usually you go to Vietnam and make a name for yourself or, you know, come back alive certainly as a prerequisite. But uh, in order to get a job like what I had at the White House, but I was not satisfied. I I needed to go to Vietnam. I had four of my classmates from high school, it was a small class, were killed in action in Vietnam. And I was the class photographer. And by this point, I'm a professional news guy. And I would not have forgiven myself if I didn't go to Vietnam. And I just kept begging and pleading with the guys up in New York. And they finally gave me my shot. The week I was going over, or two weeks before I left, I was gonna be replacing Kent Potter. And Kent and Larry Burrows of Life Magazine and uh, Andre Hewitt of AP and photographer uh, Shimamoto from Newsweek were all killed when they were shot down in a helicopter over Laos. And I think that was the moment where I thought, this is really serious shit that I'm doing here. I mean, uh, I knew it was, and a lot of drivers have been killed, but I had a long chat with my friend who had been a combat driver. And uh, he said, is that gonna stop you from going? And I said, no. I thought about it to the degree that this is more than a game now, and here we go. And I did it, and uh, it was a big deal for me.
0: And how long were you there?
1: I was in Vietnam about two years, a little more than two years.
0: And were you embedded?
1: First year of, well, I hate that word, really. We didn't call it that. I mean, we just went out and, what I don't think people understand is the U.S. military was very helpful to to the press and photographers. If you wanted to ride into combat and they had a space on the helicopter, uh, you could go. It was easy, hmm. really easy. The politicians, of course, talk about the press. Losing the war, well, that's total bullshit. I mean, the fact the matter is, bad policy led to us losing the war. The fifty thousand plus bodies coming back from Vietnam, lost the war. Opinion turned against it, and I think photographers. Uh, I did not have a dog in that hunt. I was not an anti-war person, pro person. I'm a news guy, and I think most of the people covering the war really did that we cared about the soldiers who were fighting that we were telling their story they couldn't believe that somebody would show up in the middle of a battle that didn't have to be there I mean that would just blow their mind <laughs> it would be like no, wait wait you don't have to be here I said no no he said man I wish I could trade places with you because I'd be out of <laughs> here you know I mean we all went for our own reasons but to me it was the biggest story of my generation and remains so But I needed to go. I did go. I did not. And Mr. Roberts went finally and ended up being killed in action. Uh, I fortunately didn't have that happen to me. Uh, It's one of those things that I don't think I would have forgiven myself if I hadn't Hmm. gone.
0: And you were in the middle of a number of firefights and you did cover tribulations and emotions of a lot of young men who were in the field.
1: Yeah, I was scared to death every time that would happen. And I said, well, OK, if I get out this time, God, if you if you get me out this time, I will, I'm never going to do this again. Of course, then I'm back the next day. <laughs> i lied. sorry, God. That's sorry. Like, what happens. People do this. They talk about battlefield conversions uh, to a religion. I'm an Episcopalian, but uh, I don't think I had that great moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, my religion really is photography.
0: That's beautiful. Did you feel the photos of one of the Pulitzer, of course, and the other photographs tell the story of those boys?
1: Yeah, I put one out the other day, actually. Uh, It's up there now. It's on Kennerly.com. I don't change that out every day. Uh, But it was a young African-American GI in a monsoon rain under a tarp. I saw it. And that picture had never been published. But I was looking through some of my stuff that wasn't part of the uh, Pulitzer, uh, portfolio. I have that guy, that picture really got to me. I mean, I, I think when you look at pictures, which is one reason it's a good idea to wait till the end of your career to really do a career book because, uh, those photos over the years, they add up differently later. Or you find people who, like a young Dick Cheney in the White House, who then goes on to become Secretary of Defense and Vice President and uh, a name you can't mention in Santa Monica, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who remains a friend of mine. I think to be able to reflect and look back is really important. And I think that I've been doing that. And I found that photo and I've found other pictures. So... The book I'm going to do, which is sort of the magnum opus book, which will ultimately, by the time it comes out, it'll probably be like 60 years of photography or close to it. Amazing. I I really haven't gotten into it yet, but it'll feature a lot of undiscovered pictures. I mean, how do you take a career like mine with a million pictures and boil it down? And I've done several books, and they're sort of along the way. Got a book. Shooter was one early. A book called photo op it kind of went up to 93 but this one is going to take everything i ever shot and how do you edit that book that's what i'm wrestling with right now really hard because most good picture books maybe have 120 or 30 pictures in them i mean a lot would be 150 let's say it's 150 that would be three pictures a year not even wow. from my career how do you do that? I don't know. That's kind of what I'm thinking about now.
0: It's an extraordinary task. And then, how do you tell the story you want to tell, not only of your pictures, but of your life? And you've photographed 10 presidents, number of world leaders?
1: Uh, let's see, every president since LBJ. That's amazing. You know, Nixon was really the first major coverage of a president, and obviously Ford and on and on and on. And I have really good pictures of all of them, I mean, I have quality pictures meaningful photographs, including our current leader.
0: And that led to photographing things like Anwar Sadat's trip to Israel or Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev's meetings. Yeah. You had extraordinary access.
1: Yes, it was. The Reagan-Gorbachev meeting in Geneva in front of the fireplace was probably, in the modern presidency, one of the most important meetings that ever took place because the fallout of that led to the end of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev being a fascinating leader. Really, it was a sort of a consortium. They wouldn't put it that way, but it was uh, Pope John Paul II collaborating with Ronald Reagan, the whole solidarity movement. All these things came into play. It was a really interesting period. And then there was the Reykjavik summit. When I had the cover picture of time, I did, did not have behind the scenes access, but the best picture was out in front where Reagan's looking at Gorby, you know, sort of, well, there you go. Uh, you know, like you did mine <laughs> well. And so that picture, I nailed it, and it got on the cover of Time. And, you know, I'm, I'm good on the inside or the outside. I think that's how you have to kind of play this game. I'd always rather be inside. One reason, if you're the only one in the room, nobody ever knows if you miss something. <laughs> it's standing sort <of>, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder with all these other great photographers. It'll become clear very quickly how well you did.
0: <laughs> That's great. You had unprecedented access in Gerald Ford's White House?
1: Well, yes, yeah, that was <clears throat> that was the fox in the chicken coop moment for me. My presidential photographer hero is uh, Yochi Okamoto, who was uh, LBJ's photographer. And Oki was the first civilian to have that job. Uh, I was the third, Ollie Atkins with Nixon, me with Ford, Jimmy Carter. They retained my staff, but he didn't have a personal photographer with access. His press secretary said they didn't want another David Kennerly in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually flattered by that. So I would think yeah. so. but <laughs> uh, I didn't like Carter at all because he beat my boss. And um, I've gotten to know him and admire him over the years, uh, as did Ford. I mean, they became very close friends. When Ford offered me the job the night he became president, I told him I would do it if I reported directly to him and that he gave me total access to everything that was going on. Ollie Atkins had almost no access. He couldn't walk into the Oval Office. He had to wait for somebody to tell him to go in. He went in at the top of meetings and uh, had to leave. And Okamoto had incredible access to LBJ, who was also a really interesting guy to photograph. The LBJ Library houses Oki's photos. It's just an astonishing set of photos. I don't know how to compare him really in a photographic sense. He's more like a Mozart, uh, like a Hemingway as a writer. Like his skill level, his storytelling abilities were profound. And I knew him and I knew what he did. Uh, So I wanted to be Oki, not Ollie. And I told the president I wouldn't take the job unless I could have that kind of access. He said, okay. They said, um, said, you don't want Air Force One on the weekends? <laughs> 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 it was pretty funny. But, but that conversation took place in his house in Alexandria nine hours after he became president of the United States because we were so close. I'd been covering him for Time Magazine. I was one of his first appointments. Uh, he wanted me to work for him because I didn't have a dog in the hunt. I wasn't trying to get somebody else's job. or uh, I was in it for the history. He knew that, he was a, really a, a man without vanity. It wasn't like like LBJ, uh, had a you know, big personality, big ego. Oki was there to cover him historically, which was great. I mean, I don't care what the motivation was. Nixon was private and just didn't want that scrutiny day in and day out. And then along comes Kennerly, and I really had the same shot at it as Oki did. Ford wasn't as dramatic a person, as Johnson was, and you didn't have the Vietnam War going on and the civil rights stuff. I mean, that was a huge presidency with LBJ. But Oki was the first photographer to take you into the room. I mean, sitting there at the side of the desk, right in between Martin Luther King and LBJ in the cabinet room, and like you really had the feeling you were in the meeting. Nobody had ever really provided that. JFK had military people doing it and allowed certain access but the big moments. Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were no photos of the real drama. Hmm. So LBJ hired Okamoto to do it, and he was the best. I mean, out of all of us, he was the best. And I, I say that about myself, certainly, but with Sousa and Eric Draper and Bob McNeely, they're all good. But Okie was the one. He was the gold standard.
0: Hmm. That's great. That's an extraordinary
1: story. I, I, do, I do a lecture on this. So. <laughs> Ah, okay. Ollie stayed on and he was essentially working for me. And Ollie was like a pinstripe, suited, squared away older guy. And uh, he didn't like me at all. Well, I mean, on every level, really. Like, number one, I immediately have the access that he never had. You know, fuck it, man. I'd been in Vietnam. I'd won a field surprise. I was dating beautiful women. Uh, I was really enjoying myself, but I was working 16 hours a day. I mean, that was number one, two, and three in importance. But he just thought I was worst case scenario with my foul mouth, uh, like sort of <laughs> ego maniac. Like, I was like, I was pretty bad. We ended up parting ways because uh, it just didn't work out. It was better for him, really. Uh, but I'm real happy with that period.
0: Oh, it's amazing. It's a gift in terms of your life and as an image maker.
1: The idea of driving... From my house in Georgetown, it was only five minutes away. When they saw me coming up the drive, the gates opened. It wasn't Mr. Kettleers. Was, hey, Dave, how you doing? And I parked. at my parking place was like three places up from the vice president's That's uh, where they parked his car. <laughs> I know. I think mean, what the hell? But as I said earlier, I never got over it. I never took it for granted. And I was working with the best people on the planet. I mean, I loved the Fords. We were extremely close. And it just was fantastic. I mean, it was a dream. And to this day, I, I, and I'm and i just glad I did it right. I, I'm glad that I showed who he was to people. And I did a big exhibition out at the Ford Library it's down now. But I was interviewed by somebody who said, What do you want people to come away with here? I said, I want you to know Gerald Ford. If you feel after you've gone through this exhibition that you had a sense of him, I did my job. And that was important to me.
0: That's great. And you've continued to cover politics, confirmations, Senate hearings. You traveled during the last election with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump.
1: Yep. Not together. together. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been good. Well, you know, the interesting thing is we're all the same age. George W. Bush, Al Gore, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, were all baby boomers. So there was this shared experience. But with Trump, I never had a feeling that that there was any shared experience I had with him because he was a rich kid, privileged kid from New York. And I'm a little guy from a lumber town in Roseburg, Oregon. And Hillary uh, I've identified with a lot more. Gerald Ford I identified with because the name that he was born with was Leslie King. His name wasn't Gerald Ford. Hmm. He was basically adopted by his uh, mother's second husband and didn't really know his dad. But he had this soul and heart of a guy who really somebody who cared about other people. But with Hillary... I identified with her a lot more. I like her, uh, which is not a prerequisite, certainly, for me doing my job. I do observe people, whether I like them or don't like them, is kind of irrelevant, really. Hillary and I hit it off. She was funny. We're the same age. I had first photographed her in 1974 when she was a young lawyer on the uh, House Judiciary Committee that was uh, impeaching Richard Nixon. Flash forward to 1998, impeaching Bill Clinton <laughs> in that same room. <laughs> and actually, the articles of impeachment went out, and were, uh, he did get impeached. And then um, back in there with uh, Trump, I was one of, one of the few people around who covered all those uh, impeachment stories. Who do you relate to? I, Gerald Ford, to me, was like an old man. Because, I mean, the fact that Ford's like 10 years old than my dad, He just seemed like an old guy. But I mean, as you look back and look at the pictures, he was very vibrant, very athletic, a keen thinker. So and Hillary, too, I mean, we're the same age. But I don't identify with Trump because I don't identify with people brought up in that way. Even if you were a kid of the richest car dealer in Roseburg, that was really a different level of society in Roseburg. So extrapolate that in. You know, a guy whose dad hands him a few million bucks and the keys to the kingdom—that's not my guy.
0: Yeah, it's a different world completely.
1: I just don't know that world. I mean, I've never lived in that world. Yeah. Plus, he dodged the draft, <clears throat> and I never cared if people dodged the draft or not. If they own up to it, and uh, I don't care. You can do whatever you did. Believe me, I have no respect for that.
0: No, I understand completely, and I—I yeah. I, I don't think you're alone.
1: I mean, I dodged the draft. I went in the National Guard. I did six months active duty as a member of the Oregon National Guard. So I went to basic training with everybody, and then uh, advanced training. So when I got the chance to go to Vietnam, I had to get out of the Army to go to the war, which is not a story most people have. Going to the National Guard—I mean George Bush, W. Bush—did it. I had no family connections, and I. People try to accuse him of doing that. I don't think he did. Uh, I know him pretty well. But I did not want to go to Vietnam to be told by some 22-year-old kid from Kentucky to charge the Hill. That just seemed like a bad idea. And I don't have a lot of respect for authority anyway. So uh, it would have been a bad matchup. But I did it. I did the duty of... I got in on on my own. And then I had a terrific general who took the case up to the Pentagon at a very high level about this kid who wants to go to Vietnam as a news photographer, but they don't do weekend meetings in Saigon. So I, I needed to get a, a buy. And I think of the chief of staff of the army, who was a friend of this general's, who was my commanding general, said, yeah, why not? Uh, we're not going to create an ugly precedent here. <laughs> I mean, you know. My units were filled with people who didn't want to go to Vietnam. I did it, but I'm neither proud nor unhappy about it. I mean, it's just what I did. Well, yeah, and you were definitely there. Nowadays, if you'd been in the National Guard or the Reserves, you would have done three tours of duty in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's true. I mean, unbelievable. Back in those days, it was highly unlikely that you would go. If you did that, you were pretty well out. And in a way, I felt a little guilty because all those guys I was in basic training with, so that was 1967, man, that was prime time. They were going to Vietnam. Uh, I have so much respect for them, I can't tell you. I'm sure. You said your
0: archive was a million images, and that archive was purchased by the Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona, and is now housed there.
1: That's right, and the Center for Creative Photography was founded by um, Ansel Adams, and i'm one of the people who could say ansel was a friend of mine i knew ansel adams and you're no ansel adams right <laughs> that's what people said to me all the time <laughs> so fabulous human being one of my favorite people on the planet he and gerald ford are both in the hall of fame in my mind for just great people talented people and the president then president of the university of arizona uh, dr john Schaefer approached Ansel, John was a, um, I think at the time, the youngest big college president in the United States. He might've been early thirties even, an amateur photographer, a good photographer in his own right. And told and said, if you put your archive here, I will build a building and we'll call it the Center for Creative Photography. And they did it. And it was 1975, I was in the White House, which is when I met Ansel and introduced Ansel and had a meeting with the president of the United States. They hit it off. I I gave the annual uh, Ansel lecture last year on his birthday, and I didn't talk at all about his photography. I talked about his relationship with President Ford and how he convinced President Ford to put forth legislation to like double the National Park Service. And uh, it was an incredible story, really. So Ansel and I became really good friends. I went out to photograph him when he had his big Museum of Modern Art show, I convinced Time to do a cover story on Ansel. So I did the cover portrait of Ansel. And that same year, Ansel tried to get me to donate my archive to the uh, Center for Creative Photography. I said, Ansel, I've only been out of high school like 10 years. <laughs> I said, this is really premature. And though so when this whole deal was made, John Schaefer, who's still around, gave a little talk. He said, well, it's taking us 35 years we finally got Kennerly's archive. And it was because of the uh, leadership of Dr. Robert Robbins, who's the president of Arizona now, that they got it. And there were a lot of people interested from Yale to Stanford to USC to a private individual. It was all about the history, certainly the photography. But photography is not even, obviously wouldn't exist without it. But, it, but all the, the stories I've covered, the photographs of people, it just has a, a real interdisciplinary arc to it. I mean, it's not just about photography or journalism. It's being an eyewitness to history to be a firsthand observer with a camera. And that's what is exciting to them about it. And then it's housed in a place with Edward Weston's archive is there, uh, W. Eugene Smith, whom I knew, hmm. Richard Avedon, whom I knew, Gary Winogrand. I mean, they have an incredible list of photographers there. And it's the premier archive in America. Uh, I am really pleased to be part of it because it's not just going to sit on the shelf. I mean, there'll be a vibrant, productive archive.
0: Yeah, a center for research, no question.
1: Yeah, it's a good one.
0: So what is one thing you've learned along the way?
1: <laughs> oh, my God. See, that's what the kind of questions my wife answers, I can't answer. <laughs> but come on, you've got to like... Gotta let it out. There's so many things. Uh, One thing I've learned for sure is about the resilience of human beings. I think we're seeing it every day, particularly now. Human beings in a crisis generally step up to it. If you were in the Oval Office now and all the crazy stuff going on, but look at the portraits on the wall. You know, you've got Abraham Lincoln and you've got George Washington, and you've had. Great presidents and mediocre presidents and bad presidents, and, and, but we survive all of that. And I think that's really an important thing. that I've been covering news and you know big history for so long. The one thing you can always count on is the spirit of people. And I've seen it at play, and you would think that I would be a little more pessimistic just because of all the horrible things I've seen, like Jonestown, the uh, number one awful thing. Uh, Wars, but people shine through the fog. They really do. That's wonderful.
0: What personal characteristic do you most attribute your success to?
1: Um, Perseverance. Okay. When I go after a story, I don't let up. Well, Ford said my tombstone should read, Here Lies the Worst Source in Washington. (laughs) (laughs) I never, I wouldn't talk about stuff, you know, I mean, I'm like, it's a discreet business. I'm in the room to take pictures, not to like feed stories out. And I I was a horrible source, uh, rightfully so. Photographers are not, we're in the the history of the photography, and we don't want people to look at us and wonder, is he going to say something? I mean, they can just look around their own room. Like now, I mean, the Trump White House is like a sieve. But I guarantee you the people not talking are the photographers. Guaranteed. None of that's coming from them. But perseverance is, it's about getting onto a story and a mission and and not letting go. Uh, It's about getting up some days where you don't feel like that terrific. It's about, uh, I don't know. I've worked with a lot of people. I've had an assistant I worked with who's half my age, he said, I've never seen anybody with your kind of energy, like you're able to just plow through it. That has to be a genetic, I don't work out, actually, I don't think I've worked out a day in my life. Wow. I shouldn't say that. I just have a, the energy, I have the energy, and I think I'm fueled by excitement and curiosity and what's making this world tick, or the people, what's under that hood, and I like looking there. Mm, beautiful.
0: And one last question. What advice would you give to somebody who has the desire to step out on a new career path or who would like to create a career based on the things they love and believe in?
1: The most important thing is to find out what you want to do and do it. It's all possible. and I I think it's tough in the, the photo world now. I mean, you couldn't come up the same way I did because a lot of those newspapers are gone. However, there are just millions of outlets my switch over from film to digital was a kind of indicative of my personality when a lot of other photographers my age or older a lot of them just retired they didn't want to deal with all the, the digital uh, world and but i kept telling people i said it's not changing the way you see things there's no difference between me like taking a picture whether it was digital or film didn't make any difference and canon Who's my sponsor? Uh, made it really easy. They they were really at the forefront of digital photography, and and I'm plugging them not because they're paying me to do it, which they are. I don't make enough money off of that to make up for using some gear that I wouldn't use. I make more money on one assignment that they would pay me in a year, but the fact is, digital photography. And Canon probably added another 10 or 15 years to my career. That's just part of the perseverance saying nothing will stop me from pursuing what I love doing, uh, technology uh, among them.
0: Well, I hear that from a number of photographers, whether it was the change to digital or the growth in social media. They use those as reasons to either stop shooting or to complain and not be engaged. And I love that attitude. You can't fight social change or technical change. You need No, to...
1: no, yeah, no, and that that's another good point. By the way, another good piece of advice, copyright your material, copyright, copyright. It's really important because then the big player steals your stuff. You have a huge recourse. But if some kid is going to take my pictures and put it on his webpage or whatever, I don't care. I think if I had to pick one, I didn't have Instagram because that, that's a true photo platform and I don't have a huge I'm coming up on like fourteen, thousand followers or something, which is quite a few. But, you know, look at Pete Susan has uh, got 2 million people. I mean, that's like a real power there. I didn't get into Instagram earlier. I was thinking, oh man, I just, I'm doing Facebook and and Twitter, and Twitter, you can only get in trouble on Twitter, because I, I unleashed some of my inner thoughts there. <laughs> Nobody's going to, why do they care what I say? I mean, look at all these people who are out there, like, blah, 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 you know, opinions, opinions, everybody's got one. Yeah. Or, or three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So anyway, I'm still guilty.
0: <laughs> well, this has been amazing. I could sit and listen to stories for hours, and hopefully we'll have a chance to do that one day. But I appreciate your time and your insight.
1: Oh, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's like, it sort of goes back to why I like radio. Radio interviews, when I was promoting books uh, or whatever, doing like a 15-minute like a NPR interview or something like that is so much more interesting. And if you go on the Today Show, you got three minutes to talk about your book. It really makes me nervous. It's not a conversation. It's like a okay, I'm gonna blast through this because I wanna hit these two or three points. But this kind of a thing is perfect for me because I like talking about what I do, but I don't like breaking it up into little chunks. I
0: agree, and I think it makes it far more interesting for anyone who's listening or interested in the history.
1: Yeah, oh for sure. Yeah.
0: Good conversation's hard to find, so it's always well, nice when you do.
1: Yeah, and we'll talk later and uh, get some photos if you want to yes. put them out there. You can, from this, figure out what you want, and we'll get them for you.
0: Okay. I love it. All right. Thank you, David. Have a good afternoon. All right.
1: See you later. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope that you join us next time on Thomas Werner Podcast.